Amen. Hey, good morning. I'm Cameron. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Christ Community Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. We are starting in the book of Esther. Uh, and I need to give you a, a, just an introduction to the book as a whole before we look at the, the passage. Um, and so I, I think that'll be important and helpful to us as we, as we think through what it is that God is trying to say to us in and through the book of Esther. Because some of you may be thinking it's quite an interesting choice for the season of Easter. Somebody asked me, uh, actually, if I just chose it because it somewhat rhymed with Easter. And no, that's just a bonus uh, aspect to things. Um, but as we do step into the book of Esther, you need to know that there are many scholars and uh, main theologians, Luther being one of them, who did not think that it belonged in the Bible. And the reason that he didn't think it belonged in the Bible is because there's no overt reference to God, right? And that was a real struggle uh, in, in many respects for him to take the book seriously, as have many others. However, I would like to argue, as do many other scholars, that the reason that God's name isn't mentioned is actually to help us grow in our ability to see where he's at work, not only in the book of Esther, but to help train us to have faithful eyes to be able to see where he's at work in our own lives. Because if we're honest, are there not many places in your life and circumstance where it's just hard for you to see, Lord, what are you doing? Where are you at work in this? Where can I find you? And so this is the, the point of the book of Esther. In fact, it is, uh, some have referred to it as uh, comedy burlesque in, in a sense, right? Because the point of the book is to help the people of God celebrate a festival called Purim. And Purim is just the Hebrew word plural for lots, the casting of lots, which is a key uh part of the story that we'll find out about. And when they, uh, Jewish folks, celebrate Purim, it is a raucous festival. In fact, some have described it as, as the most secular of all the Jewish festivals because there's eating and drinking and yelling and hissing and clapping, and it's, it's a very festive time. Even when they read the book of Esther, they read it interactively. They dress up as the various characters in the book with the exception of one, and that would be Haman. In fact, every time Haman's name would be mentioned out loud, and I've toyed with whether or not to allow the children to participate in this part of it, they would hiss and boo. In fact, in some cases, they would pass out these little noisemakers, these wooden noisemakers, so that you could not hear the name of Haman when it was spoken. And so this is a book that is asking us to lean into our faith and to be matured in so doing. In fact, Deborah Reed, I think, has a great way of putting it. She says, accounts of salvation are always faith-creating and faith-confirming. And somehow Esther conforms to this norm without the necessity to identify that it is God's hand at work. In other words, the text serves as an invitation. It is as if the author says, I am inviting you to hear this story and to respond to it with faith. This journey to faith requires pondering the events, searching for God within the plot, and choosing to see his active presence. So the story veils God's presence rather than hides it, teasing the reader to look beyond the veil to the greater reality that can be uncovered through searching. The story requires a response to the mystery of the veiled presence of God. This response is faith-creating and faith-building, for it is personal and individual response rather than a second-hand one built only on the author's own interpretation of the story. So what Deborah Reed is telling us is that, no, it's not lying right on top of the ground, 
but it is there. It is there for us to try to lean in and grow in our ability to see it. In fact, there are many aspects of Esther that are comedy, and they're intended to be comedy, or better said, maybe irony, or even the lampooning of power uh, based on Psalm chapter uh, 2, which you know is like, why do the nations rage? That's a critical psalm for this text. In fact, Esther is located, if you're wanting to know where you can find it in your Bibles, after Nehemiah and before Job, which is interesting that it concludes the historical section of the Old Testament and serves in some measure as introduction to the wisdom literature. In fact, you're going to hear me use a lot of wisdom language talking about fools and wise. That's very evident in the book of Esther. In fact, many of Matt asked me about this. He said, the garish celebration of a fool? Well, if you know what the word garish means, it just means ostentatious. I guess I just used a bigger word for a smaller word. <laughs> Over the top. Right, And so there's some ways in which he's going to be described, he being King Ahasuerus, as over-the-top. There's over-the-top language in describing him that is meant to actually lampoon his power. And so we don't want to miss that uh, as we go through the book of Esther because, it's again, this will help train us to better see where God is at work in our own lives, which we all, if we were confessional, could really use. So... That's the introduction to the book as a whole. Now, back to the text that we're going to be in this morning, verses 1 through 9 in chapter 1. So if you would, go ahead and be turning in your copies of God's Word to Esther 1, 1 through 9. And again, I I want to um, uh, make sure that we understand that the key truths that we're going to have throughout this series are going to be more about God than it is necessarily what's happening in the text itself. Right, So it's going to be how does the text help train us to see God either in contrast to what's going on or revealed by what's going on. So that'll be an important thing to note as well, just in case you're like, I don't see this in this text. Well, it's, it's meant to help us to see it uh, in the church, in the life of the church uh, for us as God's people. So the key truth that I would love for us to walk away with this morning is that God offers us the opportunity to festively celebrate his eternal gifts accomplished and applied in Christ each week in communal worship. Let me say that again. God offers us the opportunity to festively celebrate his eternal gifts accomplished and applied in Christ each week in communal worship. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Esther chapter 1. Now let me pause here for just a second. Some of you may be wondering, why didn't Cameron make us stand when we read God's word? We stand for a lot of other stuff. Well, one of the reasons that we at Christ Community choose to sit when we hear God's word is we've heard the assurance of pardon. We've confessed our sin, we've heard the assurance of pardon, and we've celebrated Jesus. We now get to receive as those who've been forgiven, those who are beloved, so we can rest in the finished work of Christ. So that's just my reasoning for that. All right, back to the word. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne and Susa the citadel in the third year of his reign gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory, and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. 
And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of Porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me ask you by way of introduction to this text, what in your life is more worthy of celebrating than what God has done for you in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit? Now, before you go getting all religious and spiritual and say, well, there can't be anything, can there? Yes, that's the obvious answer, but you and I need to take better stock of how we live this reality out, right? Too often, we give the Lord our leftovers in so many respects, and he'll, he can do, he can, remember, he can turn water into wine. He can take our leftovers and build an entire kingdom out of them. Don't get me wrong. But how much greater should we long to and want to be able to participate instead of out of a scarcity economy, out of the the lavish abundance of life that the Lord has called us to in and through the death and resurrection of Jesus? Shouldn't we want to participate in a kingdom that is eternal instead of only having opportunity to celebrate what is passing, right? You Lions fans, Monday's going to be tough. It's passing. I'm kidding. They can't lose to the Bucks, can they, Joe? Well, we'll find out. But, but you see what I'm saying? Like We put so much effort and energy into things that are passing that, that, that don't bring us the kind of joy that our salvation in Christ can week in and week out, day to day, night to night, morning by morning. And would that we would be a people who are able to celebrate those things in a way that lets the world know who and whose we are. Instead of just giving the Lord what is but left over if there at all, right? So the book of Esther is all about festivity. You guys are going to get so tired of hearing that word that hopefully it'll go into practice, so I'll quit saying it. But we want to be a church that is more festive because of who and whose we are. We want to be able to celebrate the good things and to celebrate with those who are celebrating and and also be able to weep with those who weep because we also recognize the cost, right? We want to be able to do both well and not just be stoic and a-emotional or unemotional. And so what we hope to see from the book of Esther is there is great reason to celebrate both historically and eternally for what the Lord has done for us. And so as we step into this text, we're going to look at some of the ways in which King Ahasuerus is being made fun of. The author of Esther is making fun of King Ahasuerus, which is a dangerous thing to do uh, because, uh, well, this book was probably written after his reign, but it's still a dangerous thing to make fun of any king, is it not? Because all earthly kings don't like being made fun of. 
So this is one of the reasons why his name is said three times in the first sentence. Now, what you need to know is that Ahasuerus is the Hebraic version for Xerxes I. Xerxes I reigned from 45 B.C. to 465 B.C. He, for those of you 300 and Spartan fans, uh, was the one who lost to the Greeks. He tried to invade Greece in 479, and he lost. And part of that story, like y'all do know 300 is a real thing. Uh, They were real names. All 300 names of the Spartans were recorded, those who died that day, holding that pass. And it made a big difference in in the outcome of things. Uh, Now, there's there's some embellishments in the movie 300, don't get me wrong, but it is actually a true story. And so, King Ahasuerus is Xerxes. But what you really need to know is that that Hebraic version of Xerxes is actually an epithet. They're making fun of him. They're calling him King Ahasuerus headache, or king blockhead, right? The, the word Ahasuerus means in, in, in vocalic Hebrew, like you, you hear it, and it sounds like the word for headache, meaning he can't think for himself, which we're going to discover very quickly that this person who is over all of these things and throws these ostentatious parties and, and trots out all that he has that, by the way, he didn't earn. It was inherited to him because of his father, Darius I. He didn't win any of this stuff. He was just given it to manage, and the first thing he does is lose pretty significantly to Greece. Now, that story will conclude when Alexander the Great comes in 333 B.C. and lays the axe to the root of that kingdom. But what we see here is old King Blockhead, he reigned over a large portion of territory. Now, some argue that it is difficult to think there were truly 127 provinces because there were only about 25 to 27 satrapies. Again, this is not language that's part of our culture. If we were talking about counties and cities, maybe it would be easier for us to understand. It is possible that there were 127 provinces. Daniel records 120 in his account. And so, The issue is not whether or not there's 127. The issue is the fact that they chose to report it in the smallest unit possible to make it sound the biggest. So again, old King Blockhead reigns over like, I don't know, a billion provinces is the way that it may be being written in some respects. So it's to highlight how powerful he thinks he is. And notice he throws a feast, and he throws a whale of a feast. This thing goes on for half a year. Any of you guys been to a party that lasted for half a year? Me neither, Uh, but probably what was going on here is he was planning for war against the Greeks, and so he was bringing in various groups over that 180 days, and notice what he does. He shows them all his stuff, so they would be in awe of him, so that they would think much of him, right? This is setting the story. This is is what, what goes before the fall. Pride. So it's really setting Ahasuerus up for quite the embarrassing fall, although that is actually not the point of this story, Esther, that is. So he throws this amazing party, and he shows all of his amazing stuff that he, by the way, didn't earn, but he is taking credit for. And then, in kindness, decides, all right, I'll throw a local party for the locals, right? Show them how nice and kind I am. So he has this seven-day deal that follows a 180-day deal, and he gives presents, and he feeds everybody. 
Uh, and, and notice the description. This is a, an interesting thing to think that the, uh, an author of Scripture under the influence of the Holy Spirit would take so much time to describe the curtains and the couches. Now, here's what's interesting, and this is always is an important question to ask. You see something like that, you should go, why is that there? Well, where else is that kind of description afforded to us in the Old Testament? The description of the temple in all of its glory. And so what we have here is a bit of irony going on, is that they're taking the time to talk about all the amazing things that, that are part of the, an interesting story when, when uh, the Greek, they, tried, they, they invaded Greece and fought with them and then they, they retreated. The Greeks were stunned at the amount of just garish stuff that they left behind, these gold couches and stuff. And they said, why would people who own gold couches attack such an impoverished nation as us. What do they think they're going to gain? They already have gold couches. And so all of this, all of this ostentatiousness, all of this garishness, all of this display of power and glory is, is to set the stage for the king who has a greater power and a greater glory and more to give. Think of the, the way that Ephesians 1 describes what we have in Christ. It says that we have access to all of the heavenly blessings. We have a banquet in the means of grace that far exceeds all of this. We are welcome to a series of feasts week in and week out to taste and see that the Lord is good in and through his word, to come to his table as those who are forgiven and being, and being uh, matured as disciples in Christ. There is a feast that is coming for us at the marriage supper of the Lamb where we have yet to eat the best meal and drink the finest wine that we've ever known. And we should, that should excite us that along the way we get little foretastes here and there of this meal that is to come. It should excite us that we get to come boldly before the throne of grace to receive what we need in a time of trouble, both mercy and grace. In any given circumstance, it should excite us that even now while you maybe you're struggling for any number of reasons, Christ is interceding on your behalf before the throne to help remind you and all of creation of who and whose you are. And even when we don't have the words to utter in prayer, though we know we need them, we ought to, the Holy Spirit is groaning on our behalf for things too wonderful for us to comprehend. He's praying for what we truly need, while we oftentimes are just asking, as C.S. Lewis would say, we're comfortable with the mud pies we're eating instead of the banquet that sits behind us. And so everybody's excited because Ahasuerus is throwing these parties, lavish parties, and he's displaying his glory, but it's a fool's bargain. All of his plans are going to lie in ruins. He is but King Blockhead. He is going to be influenced and moved by the very people that he rules over in ways that are going to cause him to make some really bad decisions and to make a really good decision for the people of God. But none of it is going to be his idea. And so, is he really in power? Who really is in power here? Despite all this description, notice God's not been mentioned one time. And yet, we as the people of God should read this and, and, and not be able to help ourselves but to think of God. And how what God offers to us is so much greater than what we could read here. 
There is an argument that this, this second feast, because Vashti also throws a feast for the women of the palace, which that's actually not normal. That's not a normal Persian practice. They didn't often uh, separate the men and women, and for some interesting reasons, they didn't want them separated, especially if you're going to get as drunk as he's telling them to do, right? So basically, he, his edict is eat, drink, and be as merry as you possibly can and try not to die. He is telling them to overindulge. They have the freedom to do things that they couldn't normally get away with. So essentially, this king has laid aside the law for the party, which is interesting. Because who usually suffers the most in a given circumstance when the king lays aside the law? The poorest of the poor. Now, you may be wondering, why did I pick Matthew 25 as the assurance of pardon, uh, given that it talks about judgment? Well, judgment is in the background, uh, or the foreground even, if you will, uh, of the coming of Christ, right? He receives our judgment. But what's interesting about that particular description is notice, what was the, pro what was the main problem of the goats? Well, if you're reading, it's that they couldn't see. Now, you may have thought, well, it's because they didn't do. Mm -mm. They didn't do because they couldn't see. And they didn't want to see. They had not been trained to be able to see where Christ is at work and in need in the least of all in our society. They failed to do what they did because they, they, they had not grown in their ability, their faith, to recognize all of the different places where Christ resides. They couldn't comprehend how in the world could Christ, the, the king, the king of the universe, how could he be represented in the sick, the poor, the imprisoned, the people not like me? See, this is important that we have our eyes and ears cultivated and trained to be able to see and hear where the Lord is at work in our lives, first and foremost, so we can give thanks, so we can recognize just how truly and, and, and phenomenally God loves us. Because it's out of his love for us that, the, that we can then see to love our neighbor and that we can be festive in worship. You can't fake it but so long, Right? You actually need, in order to do what the Lord has called us to do in this world as his ambassadors of reconciliation, we need to know that we are loved. Otherwise, we will burn up and burn out. And so it is important that we recognize that this season is about learning to see. This season, this Easter season is about learning to hear. It's about growing in faith so as to recognize who's truly in control. I don't know if you guys have heard, but there's, there's an election coming, I think, maybe this year. I don't know. Uh, and uh, we were talking about this this morning in congregational prayer, uh, that, that we really do have an opportunity to step into the anxiety that has been, it's been being born for years, but really could ratchet up over the next few months in so many ways to represent the beauty of the gospel and the opportunity for hope. But you can't offer someone, and I'm going to quote the great theologian Jimmy Buffett, you cannot describe the ocean you've never seen. So how are we going to call someone to the ocean of grace that the Lord has for them and for us if we ourselves have not beheld it and tasted of it? What would we be offering them? Right? And we... I've said it before, ought to be the ones who throw the best parties. We ought to be the ones who have the most hope. We are the ones who ought to be the most creative in any given circumstance. 
because we don't fear the king in the wrong way. We have awe and wonder at the king in the right way, right? This isn't someone we have to avoid. Now, interestingly, it is wondered if this was not his wedding celebration for Vashti, which would actually give a lot more gravity to what happens next to her. And interestingly, her name in Persian sounds like, and note the irony, the word beloved. And it also could mean the desired one. So this is probably not her real name. It is probably a name given by the author to, to show what's coming. So we're going to see next week how Ahasuerus treats his beloved. And we need to recognize what a gift it is that our king doesn't treat us, the beloved, in the way that he treats the one he calls beloved. And so as we, as we prepare for this feast that is before us, as we prepare to taste and see yet again that the Lord is good at a feast actually that's somehow greater than a 180-day party where, where all of the great things could be trotted out, this instead puts Christ before us. Christ crucified on our behalf to receive the judgment due our sin so that we would no longer again be afraid that God doesn't love us. We would no longer be afraid that if we were to go before God, he might kill us. No. No, this restores us to our Abba Father. And this table also grants to us resurrected newness of life. I don't know of a greater gift in all of eternity. That we get to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That, that the Trinity itself resides in us. And you may be saying, well, I mean, I've, I've felt a little bloated, but I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, no, it's not something that you feel in that way. It is a reality that is changing you like water over a rock, even, even at times when you are not celebrating it. Praise be to God that we get to come to this feast, not because of our worth, but because we've been made worthy in Christ. We get to come to this table as beloved, not worrying that we could be, we could be cast out by the king, if, if we in some way, shape, or form don't do everything we're supposed to do every single day, that we get to be reminded of our forgiveness. We get to be reminded of our belovedness. So if you don't mind, I would like to read uh, from Revelation chapter 19. This is the grand feast that we have coming. This is what we are celebrating in hopes of. This is why we keep doing what we keep doing week in and week out in, in, in hopes of this reality. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. Did you hear that? It doesn't say that there was a soft whisper, right? This party is going to kick off loud. And it will, it will feel it in our chest. It'll be earth-shattering. It'll be so much greater than our, at times, kind of paltry amen after the assurance of pardon. And it goes on. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. This is the reason for the celebration. Now let me ask you, does he reign now? I, 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 I can't hope but so. I believe it. And there are times I need help with my unbelief because as Hebrews tells us, quite honestly, there are times it just doesn't look like he's in charge. It doesn't look like he's reigning. It's Hebrews chapter 2. 
But this party will be because it will be evident and obvious there will be no doubt. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It matters how we live. It matters to the bride. It matters to the party. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, let me ask you a couple of questions before we come to the table. What actually helps you to sing, and I think this is important, as one who has been eternally forgiven and given eternal life in Christ. I know that some of you all think you can't carry a tune in a bucket, and that may be true. But that's not the point. The point isn't you. We sing, we cry out, we celebrate because of the glory of God, because God reigns. And I understand that sometimes you don't particularly care for the song. We do a few that I, 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 if they went away, I'd be fine. However, however, the content of them, and as it has gone over the years, I've come to, I hate to admit it, I'm, don't tell Josh, but I kind of like one of the songs I used to not like so much. And it, yeah, it, it's been a help. And so, so it is important that we recognize uh, we're not here for what somebody else thinks about us. We're here because of what God has declared about us. We should be singing out as ones who have been delivered and are forgiven. We, this is an act of hospitality. Do you have any idea if someone visits our church and happens to unfortunately sit on a row where some of y'all don't sing, what their perception of our church is? It ain't good. They're like, ooh, something ain't right here. So we need you. This goes back to what Robbie preached in the first Corinthians 12 series. We're in this together. We need all of our voices to make the party sound good. We need all of the voices to make this a hospitable place for those who need forgiveness. And let me ask you, how can you partake of the Lord's Supper with greater festivity and joy given what it signifies? Now, I just did a sermon series on the Lord's Supper and, and baptism. I understand there's a solemnity to coming to the table. That's in the preparation aspect. You should have already handled that this week. Right? Right? Should have read that in the letter or dealt with that. Now you come to the table as one, you're not going to clean it up enough to be worthy. You're worthy because Jesus has invited you and declared you so. Take heart. Now's the time for celebration. Solemnity is past. And so how can we help each other in these things? How can we better recognize that as we pass the tray, we're passing the tray to another image bearer who's probably going through some things who's probably been through some things and can be of help and can be family to you? How can we be those who better reflect in our person, in our worship, in our celebration, who and whose we are? Well, I've got good news for us because this table helps us do that. Remember, our theology is that this isn't just a memorial. Something actually happens here where the Holy Spirit nourishes us in our faith gives us courage in our faith, reminds us of who and whose we are, what a great gift it is. And so remember what Jesus said as he was with his friends, people he loved dearly, and he wanted them to have something 
to remember what he was about to do on a regular basis in common everyday things. So he took bread as part of that meal. Remember, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given as gift for you. Now, I added the word gift, right? But it is. It is a gift, is it not? And so he gives his body as gift for us to satisfy the fullness of the wrath of God and, and to take away our sin. And then as the meal went on, he took the cup and he raised it. He said, this, this is the cup of the new covenant. That language would have hit their ears and caused them to think of Old Testament passages that speak of hearts of stone becoming hearts of flesh, of people who can now obey the law. Wait a minute now. Obey the law, how? Knowing they are loved so they can love God and love neighbor. That's the law, is it not? Per Jesus. And so we become a people who can actually be a loving influence in a fallen and broken and dark world. Despite all our frailty, despite all our mistakes, we are now empowered with eternal blood, forgiven. And so I would say to you, as you receive the elements, meditate on these things. Now, let me say, if you don't believe in Jesus, Jesus is not your Savior, then this table's not for you. But for everybody else who recognizes that they are a sinner in need of a Savior and Christ is that Savior, that simplicity of understanding, you are welcome to dine with the people of God. You are welcome to dine knowing who and whose you are. Now, if you harbor unforgiveness towards someone, if you think you've got the ability to decide who doesn't belong in heaven, well, that's not for you to do. You're not God. So you also need to not partake of this table until such time as you can repent and bear fruit in keeping in, with repentance in reference to that. Again, everybody else, for whom Christ is Savior, please take and eat and know that the Lord is good. If the elders would go ahead and come forward who are going to be helping, we will pass the elements for those of you who are visiting with us the, there is, uh, I call it the communion MRE. It's got the little wafer on top. All of the, the juice cups have the wafer on top. So if, if you want the wafer that's, that's got far less gluten in it than the bread, you can partake of that, uh, or you can take of the bread and the juice. Do shake it up, because uh, it does, does settle a little bit. Uh, it may be closer to wine for some of you, actually, uh, in some respects. But take and eat knowing that the Lord is good. And we will stand and all take together as family and we'll sing the doxology following. Uh, so let me pray for us. Father, thank you that there is a feast, a feast that has all of the heavenly blessings uh, available to us, that the Holy Spirit helps us with each of the things that we need. Would you use this morsel of bread and this bit of juice? to nourish us as your people, to help grow our ability to see where you are at work, to know who and whose we are, to be able to participate in the things to which you have called us with greater fervor and festivity. Thank you, Father, that you are not a foolish king, that you don't throw foolish parties, that everything you do is intended and beautiful and to communicate your love for your people. Thank you that we get to hear that again this morning in this table. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.